Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, July 18th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I am Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And as we get started here with another week of reading the news and reading between the lines so you don't have to, I should tell you, Jill, I'm recording this right now from our new offices in WeWork uh, over in Brooklyn. We recently moved in here. We're loving our new uh, home space here for Mo News and the flexibility of being able to pop into the various WeWork offices around the city. Okay, I need to come check it out. You're cordially invited. We have a desk ready for you. We have a, a monitor ready for you. The Wi-Fi is blazing. And we should note, by the way, that there is a deal right now with our WeWork partnership for Mo News listeners, 20% off, six months of WeWork All Access. There's a code MoWorks20. All the details are in your show notes. You had me at Wi-Fi because, as you know, <laughs> the Wi-Fi at my house is not great. Jill, just make the commute in. I know it could be tough. <laughs> I, I know it is sometimes tough coming in from Long Island, but uh, cordially invited. Always found that working together in, in person in a news context has always been the most productive process. We do have a story about remote work and hybrid work uh, at the end of the podcast. So let's get to some headlines here. Stop me if you've heard this before. Record heat is blanketing the globe from Italy to China to the United States. From heat to floods, the search continues for two young kids swept away in flash floods in Pennsylvania. And sticking with extreme weather, more home insurers are leaving Florida in part because of more intense hurricanes. On the health beat, the FDA approves the RSV vaccine for infants and toddlers. Overseas, Moscow says Ukraine attacked a key bridge that was linking Russia with Crimea. And after months of protests, Iran's morality police is resuming its headscarf patrols. And it has been one year since the 988 mental health crisis line launched here in the U.S. And it's already been used by millions of people. Plus, a teacher shortage could get worse. Why so few college kids are studying education and the new workday dead zone when nothing gets done. Jill, I have a few things to say about this quote unquote new <laughs> dead zone. For the record, this was my favorite story of the podcast until <laughs> Motion and I talked about it. And he's like, I don't I don't even understand this story. It makes no sense. Stay tuned, folks. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> and Moshe has on this day in history. Jill, a big day in literary history throughout the 20th century. And we said hello to Vinnie, Drama, and Turtle on this day in history. Okay, let's start, though, with the extreme weather tens of millions of Americans are facing, along with millions of other people across the globe, from Europe to North America to Asia. Here in the U.S., about 83 million people were under heat warnings or advisories Monday this past weekend, Reno, Nevada, set a record high of 108 degrees. Phoenix is likely to break a record today for the most consecutive days of temperatures above 110 degrees. Mosh, put me in the air conditioning just thinking about it. <laughs> it's a dry heat. They, they assure us, Jill, that in Arizona, it's a dry heat. We should note it's not uncommon for attempts to get that high in Arizona. The record is, though, how long-lasting this heat wave has been and that the lows are not going below 90. Right, 19 straight days. Um, meanwhile, in Texas, demand for power will likely hit more record highs this week as homes and businesses keep their air conditioners cranked up to escape another heat wave. State power authorities say that they do have enough resources available to meet the soaring demand. Meanwhile, in Europe, which is the globe's fastest warming continent, 
They are expecting their warmest temperatures on record. We're talking 118 in parts of Italy. Health officials there have called it the most intense heat in the country's history. In Romania, temperatures also above 100 on Monday across much of the country. Last month was the planet's hottest June on record by a substantial margin, accompanied by record high ocean temperatures and record low levels of Antarctic ice. And that unprecedented heat has continued into this month, the first week of July was the hottest week on record, according to preliminary data from the World Meteorological Organization. I did have a hard time with that word. That it's, word it's, it's, it's why Jill never did the weather and stuck to news, folks. Meteorological, <laughs> not the word Doesn't for roll her. off the tongue. No. Um, but Jill, back to the serious issues here related to uh, the climate uh, and the various issues being faced across the country. It's not just heat. Uh, in the Northeast, you might have gotten alerts this weekend about flash flooding. Uh, and flash flooding did hit parts of Pennsylvania significantly this past weekend. Emergency crews are searching suburban Philadelphia right now uh, for a missing nine-month-old boy and his two-year-old sister who were swept away in a family car when torrential rains uh, flooded a roadway on Sunday. More than 100 search crew members and numerous drones are dispatched along a creek that drains into the Delaware River. The children were members of a family from South Carolina that were in uh, the Philly area to visit relatives when they caught up in this flood. Apparently, the way it went down, the dad took his four-year-old son while the mother and grandmother grabbed the two additional children. While the father and the four-year-old made it to safety, the grandmother the mother and the two children, the two-year-old and the nine-month-old, were swept away by the floodwaters. The children's mother was among five people killed in the flooding over the weekend while the grandmother survived. In New Jersey, there was a declaration of emergency for parts of the state impacted by the flooding. In Vermont, where there was significant flooding last week, they're distributing drinking water. Right now, the water from the tap is not safe to drink in current areas. Elsewhere in the U.S., folks in Kansas and Missouri, we've heard from you, where you're without power from weekend storms that swept those states. The largest electric power provider in Kansas that it could take days to restore service to all customers. Uh, keep in mind, as we've been telling all of you, climate change is a uh, factor here, as well as the fact that this is an El Nino year here. There are the cycles, El Nino and La Nina. In El Nino years, we tend to have these hotter uh, summers. But combined with climate change, Jill, we are seeing things uh, across the globe when you talk to climate experts, meteorologists, even those who are pretty conservative and don't engage in sort of um, any of the extreme rhetoric. Uh, that you hear from some, uh, they're a bit freaked out. You're seeing some ocean temps off the coast of Florida in the 90-degree jacuzzi-level temperatures uh, in the ocean off of Florida. And that's where they're concerned that if this continues uh, prolonged for a prolonged period in the coming weeks and months, you could see a lot of the coral reef die off uh, around the state of Florida. And a sign of the times, a fourth major insurance company has pulled back from Florida over the risk of natural disasters. AAA announced that it will not renew the auto and home insurance policies for some customers in the state, joining a growing list of insurers dialing back their presence in Florida. A sign that extreme weather linked to climate change is destabilizing the insurance market. AAA saying in a statement, unfortunately, Florida's insurance market has become challenging in recent years. They say last year's catastrophic hurricane season contributed to an unprecedented rise in reinsurance rates, making it more costly for insurance companies to operate. AAA not saying how many customers will not have their policies renewed, only that the change will affect a, quote, small percentage of policyholders. 
Farmers Insurance recently said that it will no longer offer coverage in the state. That affects about 100,000 people. Bankers Insurance and Lexington Insurance, which is a subsidiary of AIG, they left Florida last year. And at least six insurers went insolvent in the state last year as well. Yeah. And if you go back a couple years, Jill, it's more than a dozen insurers have gone insolvent in the state. Uh, Homeowners in Florida are already paying $4,200 a year for insurance coverage. That's three times the national average. And rates this year are expected to soar another 40%. We've heard from a number of you uh, who have said that you're getting these new numbers in the mail that are blowing your minds. It is prompting some to question how long they'll be able to afford to live there. Some Floridians saying they're going to try to self-insure, so to speak, meaning they're going to try to build up a pot of money for possible damages because they can't get coverage. Of course, that is a huge risk and not recommended. Last year during a special session, the Florida legislature tried to tackle the issue of insurance company withdrawals from the state. One change they made during the last session was to stop litigation against insurance companies, which has been cited as driving up insurance costs. So this is not just natural disasters, not just hurricanes, even though they had Hurricane Ian last year, the most expensive storm in Florida history. There are a number of issues in Florida, which is effectively the mecca of insurance fraud in the country. We've been talking about the cost. The premiums in Florida have soared 42% in the last year alone, 206% since 2018. They're the highest in the nation by far. And what's notable, Jill, is that Florida home values are only the 18th highest in the country, according to Zillow. So pricey real estate does not account for it. Extreme weather certainly has an impact, but other states have extreme weather as well. What is notable beyond all that in Florida is that it has become a haven for scammers. There are a number of laws in the state that have made insurance companies especially vulnerable to lawsuits. Until recently, Florida had a policy in effect, uh, one-way attorney's fees, which meant that insurers had to pay the legal fees of any policyholder who sued and won, while insurers had to pay their own legal costs if they won. So effectively, insurers were screwed either way. They had to pay either way. That was a quirk of Florida law. Another quirk of Florida law was the ability for policyholders to assign benefits to a third party, like a contractor who would sue the insurer on their behalf, sometimes without the policyholders' awareness. We've gotten notes from people who say that after a storm, you know, people go around their community saying, you want a new roof? We can get you one for free. And that was the policy in Florida that just effectively allowed in some cases, out-of-staters to come in there and take advantage of Florida's lax laws when it comes to insurance. And that has been creating issues for insurers. Add to that climate change, and you have you know a recipe for disaster in the Florida insurance market. So they have tried to change some laws in the Florida legislature. Uh, at the same time, Ron DeSantis, who's running for president, is the governor of Florida. Some people are calling on him to come back and fix the situation because it's going to really start to impact Uh, home prices there, uh, and other things across the state as it becomes uh, next to impossible to find insurance in certain areas of the state. And Jill, one final note I should add, this is not just Florida. You know, we're hearing from people from coastal Virginia who are impacted by this. People in Texas, uh, people in California in particular, with the fires there recently, having a very challenging time getting insurance coverage around the fires. So again, we're seeing these climate-related things, but the insurance industry is this early indicator, is this canary in a coal mine. Uh, about what is happening and what could be happening out there. And ultimately, you know, it might require the U.S. government to become a backstop here, as they've done with flood insurance. Will they need to become a backstop when it comes to other insurance? 
All right, we have a lot more to get to in today's speed read, including the debate Jill and I will have over this Wall Street Journal trend story at the end of the speed read. <laughs> but first, let's get to one of our big sponsors this week, Bolin Branch. They're having their annual summer event. They have a special code for Mo News community members, 20% off. We have talked, Jill, about how we only want to endorse things on this podcast that we really love. And their betting at Bolin Branch is one of those things. That is Bolin Branch, B O L L and branch. They make their sheets with organic cotton. It avoids harsh chemicals that you do see in other brands. Bolin Branch is really trying to change the standard for good when it comes to your bed. One thing we should mention is that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're breathable and perfect for the heat that we've been talking about during these summer months. And as I mentioned, for a limited time only, you can get access to their annual summer event. Use the code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, to get 20% off today over at bullandbranch.com. That's bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com promo code mo news exclusions apply see site for details and most we also always are talking about health trends and food trends and how hard it is to get all of your nutrients well one way to get all the important ones is Athletic Greens AG1 powder. I have my Athletic Greens in the morning, Mosh. It's just one scoop with a glass of water. It is easy and quick and lets you get on with your day. Knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals, and it also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit drinkag1.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer, get a discounted monthly subscription, or try it one time for just a month. Again, that is drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal, and really start to take ownership of your health. Time now for the speed read from CNN. The FDA on Monday approved AstraZeneca and Sanofi's shot that protects infants and toddlers against RSV. We've been reporting about RSV extensively, especially last winter. It is the leading cause of hospitalization among babies in the United States. It kills about 100 infants annually. Nersevimab is the first shot approved by the FDA to protect all infants against RSV. Regardless of whether they are healthy or have a medical condition, nirsevimab is a monoclonal antibody. It has a similar function to a vaccine. Vaccines stimulate the immune system to produce protective antibodies, while shots like this deliver those antibodies directly into the bloodstream. So there's another shot on the market, Jill, called palivazumab, palivazumab uh, that's also an antibody shot, but it's mainly given to infants who are preterm or who have lung or congenital heart conditions that put them at high risk of severe disease. Nursivimab now joins the mix and will be administered as a single injection. You can look for that, by the way. I mean, these are all complicated names. Nursivimab will be sold under the brand name Bayfortis. That's the one to be on the lookout for. And that's a major advantage that Nursivimab, aka Bayfortis, will have. The other shot was administered monthly throughout the RSV season and the new one will just be one injection. It was in testing, 75% effective at preventing lower respiratory tract infections that required medical attention among infants, and 78% effective at preventing hospitalization, according to a recent FDA review. And nirsevimab may not be the only option for preventing this infection this fall. The FDA is actually weighing whether to approve a Pfizer vaccine for pregnant women that would also protect babies from RSV. In that case, the mom makes the antibodies 
which cross the placenta to safeguard the fetus and are expected to last through an infant's first few months of life. So as we've been reporting on this RSV crisis, especially uh, last uh, winter, Jill, it appears now there's a few different things uh, either hitting the market or about to hit the market uh, that should uh, come as welcome news to parents. From the Washington Post, Iran's morality police resuming controversial street patrols to enforce the dress code requiring women to cover their hair and wear loose clothing. It comes about 10 months after mass protests erupted in response to the death of Masa Amini. That is the young woman who was arrested for allegedly improperly wearing a mandatory headscarf. She had died in custody. Now, during those demonstrations, women and girls burnt their headscarves or waved them in the air. And since then, many have just stopped covering their hair in public altogether. Authorities have been attempting to enforce the dress code using other measures while all the morality police patrols were paused, but they have been met with open defiance on the streets. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. But the authoritarian leadership, the religious rulers there in Iran feel like this is the time that they can reinforce the standards. We're about two months from the one year anniversary of the beginning of those protests, the Amini protests. Uh, and you might remember that they gripped Iran for months. They spiraled into a wider show of discontent against the larger Islamic Republic's leadership. Hundreds of people were estimated to be killed, 20,000 arrested as part of the government's very heavy-handed response to the protests, uh, literally killing people in the streets. Jill, we still don't know the exact number of people who were detained and killed just because of how closed a society Iran is. And for the past few months, they have been moving to reinstate their authority after quashing those protests. In April, Iran's police chief announced a plan to install surveillance cameras around the country to identify women without headscarves. The country's deputy attorney general has warned that prosecutors would charge those who even encourage women to take off their veils. Also from the BBC, Ukrainian naval drones hit a key bridge linking Russia to the annexed Crimean Peninsula, killing a couple and seriously injuring their daughter. That bridge is a symbolic and strategically important piece of infrastructure that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin himself opened back in 2018. It connects road and rail traffic from Russia to the piece of land that Moscow annexed back in 2014. Russian officials said the bridge was hit by blasts from two Ukrainian unmanned naval surface vehicles. They're calling it a, quote, terrorist act. A man and a woman driving along the bridge were killed, their daughter seriously injured. Meanwhile, a Ukrainian media outlet reported that the bridge explosion was the result of a special operation by Ukraine's SBU intelligence agency and its Navy, though other Ukrainian officials said this may have been insider operation by Russia as an excuse to launch a new round of attacks against Ukraine. Despite the explosion, Russia reporting that the route was still open between their mainland and Crimea. You might remember this is the same bridge, Jill, uh, that uh, there was an attempt to blow it up just a few months ago. Uh, in both cases, they failed to take down the entire bridge. The uh, bridge was open again uh, to traffic just a few hours after this explosion. Uh, and like mo many things in this war, we still don't know Who's doing what? They're all pointing fingers at each other. But uh, in that last case, Ukraine eventually copped to it. And it appears in this case, this is, again, Ukraine's attempt to cut Russia off from that peninsula as Ukraine tries to take it back from the north. Hours after the attack, Jill, Russia halted a wartime deal allowing grain to flow from Ukraine to countries around the world, Africa, the Middle East, Asia. 
Russia says it has its own new demands, including that sanctions need to be dropped. Russia has been complaining that restrictions on shipping and insurance have hampered its agricultural exports, though it has in the last year, Jill, shipped a record amount of wheat. This was an accord that they struck last summer to allow food to leave the Black Sea after Russia's invasion really worsened the global food crisis. The initiative was credited with helping to lower soaring prices of wheat, vegetable oil, other food commodities. A lot of wheat comes out of Ukraine to the rest of the world. Uh, And as the rest of the world was being impacted by that, uh, this was a deal that was really welcome news across the world, Egypt, Lebanon, Nigeria. Uh, There are a bunch of countries where people were pushed towards food insecurity and poverty because of how expensive wheat was getting. So this deal was really welcome. Now the deal is dead. The last one was arbitrated by the UN and Turkey. And so uh, imagine that uh, they will be getting involved this time around to strike a new deal here because the impact of uh, the lack of wheat exports will be felt very soon in uh, many parts of the globe. Yeah, just as inflation appears to be getting under control in most countries anyway, uh, this is not good news. Okay, from CNN, one year after its launch, the 988 mental health crisis line is still building awareness and staffing, but health officials say the past year has been transformative in the United States' ongoing efforts to tackle the nation's mental health crisis. Still, as it heads into its second year of existence, there are some hurdles to overcome. That 988 suicide and crisis lifeline, formerly known as the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, transitioned last year from 1-800-273-TALK to just this simpler dial code, 988. Those three numbers are intended to be easier to remember, kind of like 911 for emergency medical services. Sunday marked the first anniversary of 988's launch, and there have been nearly 5 million calls, texts, and online chat messages answered through 988 in just the year since its launch. That's according to data from the Department of Health and Human Services. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra saying, quote, that is well over a million, close to two million more than what they had seen in a previous similar time frame. Jill, almost one million of the nearly five million contacts were linked to the Veterans Crisis Line, which military members, veterans and their families can reach by dialing 988 and then pressing option one. Compared with the 12 months before the launch last July, text messages through the lifeline increased more than 1,000%. Chats answered increased by 141%, and calls answered increased by 46%. That's all according to government data. The average speed for contacts decreased from two minutes and 39 seconds down to 41 seconds. The Biden administration has invested nearly a billion dollars in the initiative. It comes as we've seen this increase, this mental health crisis increase across the country. Much of that investment has gone directly to states, territories, uh, tribal areas to hire crisis counselors and improve local response. Still, we're not seeing a 100% response rate yet. Only 18 states even had an answer rate above 90%. This has to do with funding levels in various states, and that's been a huge push at the federal level to try to get all state response times up to par. Jill, another issue they say they're facing is that many people have phone numbers with area codes that is different from where they live. And so, for example, if you have a New York area code, but you happen to live in Colorado, they're still connecting you to a New York counselor 
even though you should be receiving local support, local recommendations from someone in Colorado. And that's a technology they say they're developing. There's other things they're looking to build up over time here as they continue to build up 988. At the same time, though, they do feel that much progress has been made in the first year since uh, announcing the line. From CBS Money Watch, five decades ago, the U.S. was training an army of college students to become teachers with one in every five bachelor's degrees earned in the fields of education. And that guaranteed a steady pipeline of educators entering the profession, a vital resource for schools around the country and for the economy as a whole. Well, today, education is an afterthought for many college students who are more likely to study business, engineering, and even the visual and performing arts. This is all according to some new data from the National Center for Educational Statistics. Even as the population of college students has increased by 150% since 1970, the number of bachelor's degrees in education has plummeted by almost 50%, a steeper drop than that for things like English, literature, and foreign language majors. Meanwhile, schools in all 50 states had reported teacher shortages in at least one subject area last year. Jill, looking at the data here uh, from 50 years ago, so 1970, 21% of degrees in education, 2020, 4% of degrees handed out in education. It's something we've heard from the Monus community, people who work in education, people who uh, deal with education. And that's been a huge issue here, especially COVID, post-COVID, and all the various things teachers are dealing with these days. The few, the proud, it appears, especially as more people are looking towards other professions. So the shift here from studying education in college represents a massive change in the career goals, aspirations of Gen Z students compared with older generations. Experts say that one of the factors here is that women who have always composed the bulk of education majors now have more options in the workplace compared with five decades ago. Another big issue, of course, is the relatively low pay earned by teachers compared with other college-educated professionals. Jill, in some cases, uh, some teachers are making the same amount as they made in the 1980s, if you look at some state data. On top of that, getting a college degree, far more expensive than it was in 1970. And with salaries in education not on par with that, it becomes much less attractive to invest a huge amount of money in an education degree, knowing that you may never be able to pay off those loans that it took to get that education degree. And Jill, beyond all that, throw in uh, some recent surveys which show that a number of people are looking at how teachers are treated and the decline in respect for teachers and how that uh, is also factoring in to the decision here uh, by uh, a number of students not to pursue education in college. Jill, you're the daughter of a teacher. I imagine this has come up in, in your household at the dinner table conversation. Yeah, I mean, look, my mom absolutely loved being a teacher. So I don't know if she's the best person to ask, but she loved it. As she did not want to retire. Um, she loved going to work every day. She loved working with the kids, uh, but it was hard and it was definitely exhausting. And I will note that on Long Island, teachers are paid pretty well, especially when you compare teacher salaries to other parts of the country. Yeah, I think it's important to note that what we're looking here is national trends and obviously uh, by school district, by state, uh, private, charter, uh, public, you know, I, I, everything changes here. And so it's hard to paint things with a with one brush. But there has been this general trend line and this feeling that teachers don't feel respected. And you're looking at the numbers and you're seeing the pressure they face from parents and from school boards and from administrators and from dealing with kids with social media and cell phones and, and all these new pressures that teachers have. And so, you know, I, I don't think this data when it comes to education degrees is, is any surprise. 
Uh, and, you know, it should be one of these things that we're taking very seriously at a government level now, whether it's a nursing shortage, whether it's a teacher shortage. I mean, there's a number of valuable professions out there that are so important to um, our society, to public health, to our future. And so hopefully this is something that's on the radar screens of, of the, um, you know, administrators and, and public policymakers across the country. And without further ado, the Wall Street Journal article that Moshe and I have been debating, the new workday dead zone when nothing gets done. Bosses can drag employees back to their desks, but good luck keeping them there until the end of the nine to five workday or beyond. The 4 to 6 p.m. dead zone is one reason that so many executives are cranky about hybrid work. They say it is the hardest time to reach people and things would be easier if everybody were present and accounted for in person, even though a lot of workers seem to be leaving offices earlier. Shocker. People don't want to work after 4 p.m., Jill. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, here it goes. Uh, Workers say that that 4 to 6 p.m. flex time that they use to take a turn in the kids' carpool, hit the gym, or beat traffic often requires a third shift at night to finish the day's tasks. And they resent it when leaders assume that they aren't putting in eight or more hours of work and they are loath to relinquish the freedom to set their own schedules. Despite the return of teeth grinding commutes and overpriced lunches, lots of workers are sticking with that COVID era habit of clocking out early and making it up later. According to a new study, by 4 p.m. on weekdays, golf courses are packed, as are many New York City restaurants. So Microsoft apparently has been researching this, Jill, and they documented what's called the triple peak phenomenon in which workers' keyboard activity spikes in the morning, then again in the afternoon, and then a third time around 10 p.m. And so they predict uh, over at Microsoft that this is a pattern that is here to stay uh, despite what the bosses would like to be doing between 4 and 6 p.m. By the way, I should note as we record this podcast on on the early side that this is a particularly productive time, Jill, I feel like 4 to 6 p.m. over here at Mo News. (laughs) This is when we're cranking out. We're cranking out things, man. (laughs) Most of our, yeah, this is is when most of our things get done. (laughs) So in a recent one-month sample of Microsoft Teams software usage, the share of virtual and in-person meetings scheduled between 4 and 6 p.m., was down about 7% from a year earlier, despite people returning to the office. It seems, Jill, that one thing many people have taken away from the whole COVID era is flexibility and this uh, wake-up call that they don't want to always feel like always-on work culture. So they have a number of people quoted in the story that instead of powering through a late afternoon gathering and being done for the day, uh, some people find themselves refreshing their mobile inbox in the evening opening up their laptop on a Sunday to catch up on messages instead of that sort of post 4 p.m. period. Uh, There was one McKinsey partner that was quoted in the story saying that she likes to do work late at night. And even though she emails people back, you know, late at night, 10, 11, midnight, she doesn't expect them to reply right away. So, you know, I think it's par for the course here, though, as I was telling you earlier, I feel like after 4 p.m., you know, when you try to get that third coffee of the day or second coffee, it's always been, you know, a total buzzkill to be like, oh, there's a meeting after four o'clock. I feel like even in the pre-COVID era. So, you know, some of these trend lines, I feel like it's almost like that uh, trend we reported on. That I'll, I'll use quiet quotes. quitting. Quiet quitting. <laughs> like, like, oh my God, quiet quitting. Like, you mean being lazy at work? So I feel like, uh, you know, for lack of trends, we like to find trends where you're like, did we always kind of do this? You know, start happy hour early, leave work early. 
I don't know. One of the things that I had mentioned when we were talking about this um, before the podcast is that I don't know if you and I are the best judges of office culture because the news business is so idiosyncratic in terms of unorthodox deadlines and hours. I, for one, used to work. I I used to have to be in at 3 a.m. I've worked the night shift. I don't know if we necessarily understand the flow of a normal office. Right. Breaking news can strike at any time. You're always up for the next broadcast, the next show, depending on when you've got to go live. Uh, sometimes you're always live if you work a 24-hour channel. So I, you know, I think that's always a challenge. But it's always that seventh or eighth hour of work where you're like, I'm kind of done for the day, everybody. <laughs> All right, now time for On This Day in History on this July 18th. We have a variety here for you today. We start in 1925. The first volume of Mein Kampf, that is the political manifesto of Adolf Hitler, was published on this day in 1925, 98 years ago today. It effectively became the Bible for Nazism in Germany's Third Reich. Uh, Two years later, he would publish a second volume. Hitler first conceived of it during his prison sentence back in the early 20s. It was focused on grievances, blaming the Jews, among others, for the faults of Germany. effectively became the blueprint for his Third Reich. In that first year, Jill, the book sold less than 10,000 copies. When he uh, eventually becomes the leader of Germany, uh, it would then sell millions because it was mandatory. In fact, it would later be given to all married couples in Germany upon getting uh, wed. Staying in that era, Jill, on this day in 1940, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was nominated for a third presidential term at the Democratic Party convention in Chicago. He did receive some criticism at the time because there was effectively an unwritten rule at the time that a U.S. president should serve no more than two terms. That was a custom started by our first president, George Washington, who in 1796 declined to run for a third term. But FDR thought it was his duty to continue serving and lead the U.S. through the mounting crisis in Europe, uh, where Nazi Germany was on the rise, uh, Imperial Japan was on the rise. Of course, the war would start soon into his third term. So he would serve that third term. He would actually be elected to a fourth term in office, but quickly die thereafter. Harry Truman takes over. And then in 1947, Congress passes the 22nd Amendment to the Constitution, which stated that no person could be elected to the office of president more than twice. The amendment was then ratified uh, by enough states in 1951. Staying with presidential news and book news on this day in 1995, A certain book called Dreams from My Father, a memoir written by a little-known 34-year-old law professor named Barack Obama, was published on this day. He wrote the book before entering politics, and just 13 years after it was published, he was elected America's 44th president. All right, a bit of sports news here on this day in 1976. For her performance on the uneven parallel bars, Jill, Nadia Komenich of Romania became the first-ever gymnast to be awarded a perfect score of 10 at an Olympic gymnastic event. All right, Jill, we'll end here with a bit of pop culture news. 35 years ago today, the Beach Boys released Kokomo on this day in 88. Aruba, Jamaica, ooh, I want to take you. Bermuda, Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't know your Caribbean islands, you definitely knew it after Kokomo, but... If memory serves me right, Kokomo, not a Caribbean island. No, apparently there's a Kokomo in Indiana, Missouri, Arkansas, Colorado, Hawaii, and Texas. But I do not believe that is what the Beach Boys are singing about. Jill, there was an interview with Mike Love of the Beach Boys where he said that they weren't singing about Kokomo, Indiana, that it was sort of a (laughs) a made-up place uh, inspired uh, from uh, someone from the Mamas and the Papas, a group uh, 
that was famous back in the 60s and 70s. Come on, it just rhymed with the word go. So they're like, let's just, we'll go with Kokomo. Let's go with Kokomo and then throw in a whole bunch of real islands to make it sound serious. But if you're in pursuit of Kokomo, folks, uh, out in the Caribbean, good luck to you. Uh, And finally here, as we noted at the top of the pod, 19 years ago today, Entourage premiered on HBO. We would first meet Ari Gold, Vinny Chase, Drama, Turtle, and that whole crew. That was a great show. I'd say it was peak HBO, but HBO is still pumping out the hits. HBO is one of those things that's sort of like Saturday Night Live where like it has phases, right? Like various classic shows. But you're, I think you're right in terms of they were just coming off of Sex and the City, Sopranos, um, you know, a few of those early 2000s uh, classic shows. They had sort of entourage there uh, that would bridge them to the, what would you say next? The Game of Thrones era of HBO. You know what it was? When Entourage first came out, you talked about Sex and the City and also The Sopranos. HBO was kind of the only place where you would get that high quality of television. Maybe AMC was starting it with Mad Men a little bit. Yeah. But there wasn't Netflix and Amazon and, and the rest of the streaming platforms. Netflix was still just a DVD service sending you movies. They they didn't really uh, hit their you know, stride, you would say, until probably House of Cards, which again comes in that, you know, that next decade of 2010. But we can do a whole TV history pod at some point, Jill. And, and by the should. way, the folks at HBO would say, we're not TV, we're HBO. <laughs> That's right. Wasn't that their <laughs> adage? Yeah. Well, we are a podcast and we've got to go. Thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. We're not a podcast. We're Mo News. <laughs> um, does that work? Should we try that? We'll try it out, folks. Let us know if there's a new adage that we should try. We read between the lines. We read between the lines over <laughs> here. Uh, speaking of where we read between the lines, we do it over at Mo News Premium with the Premium Pod. We'll have another edition of the Mondays with Emotion Al, a pod out for you this week and another interview uh, along with over on the Mo News Premium Instagram account. I've been answering all your questions on 2024 politics, uh, diving in there. Uh, And so we appreciate all of you who have joined, who support what we're doing here at Mo News. Uh, That's one way to do that uh, by joining Mo News Premium. You can do that over at mo.news slash premium. All right, bye everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.